The Athletic. How are the vineyards? Good. I haven't, I haven't spent much time over there, to be frank. We have a home over there, and I went over for the, the weekend before the Torino game. Things seemed fine. It was an early frost, but overall fine. But yeah, it's a great business. It's a beautiful area. I bet. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. And as you can hear, uh, Matt is trying to get some wine off our guest today. When do you get a chance to sample this year's vintage? It was interesting. Our enologist came over here for one of our games when we played Milan. He's a Milan fan. He's a Parma fan, but he's a Milan fan. And so he brought some of our wine over for a tasting. So we tasted one of our wines and tasted the last three years, including what was in the barrel right now. So... I I got a chance to, to do a little bit of the wine sampling from the winery side while I'm over here doing the uh, football stuff. Kyle Krauss, the American billionaire owner of Serie A side Palmer. This kind of chat is exactly what happens before we actually record the interview. But coming up, uh, we're going to talk to him about why he bought the club, his perspective on that proposed Super League and his plans and ambitions, both for Palmer and for Serie A. Uh, Kyle Krauss is a hugely successful billionaire businessman, owner of US petrol and convenience store chain Come and & Go, and bought a majority stake in Palmer last year. So now Matt has done the whole wine thing. Let's start the interview properly. Kyle, just explain how you came to own Palmer. Oh, great question. You know, my mom's family is Italian, and so from... My background, I've always had a very strong bias to that part of my heritage. Despite my last name, it doesn't look super Italian. My wife and I got engaged in Sicily. We got married in Italy. And one of my sons got married in Italy. Um, so there's a, has lived here. So there's a, a family passion, a personal passion for the country. And I've had a, a, a soccer team in America for the last 25 or so years. And so... I've been involved in the sport in that way for a long time. I have a passion for the sport. And so for me, it's just kind of that perfect combination of I love Calcio. I love Italy. In America, we have more of a franchise system, which hasn't been the most popular topic over the last uh, few weeks. And so we're in the process of building a stadium in America and having a second division team there. And as I was doing that research, I was reaching out to Italians and networking and just trying to get smarter. And again, my bias towards the Italian side, I started to look around in Syria and say, what's, uh, what's out there, what's available, just to try to get a little smarter about, gee, someday, wouldn't this be great? And as I was doing that, this opportunity of, of Parma surfaced. I mean, the, the, our partners, they still own 9% of the club did a fantastic job. You know, they have a story by themselves of what they did as a club went bankrupt and brought it back in Serie D, fourth division, up to Serie A. Just a fantastic story, but they had done what they thought they were going to do, take it to Serie A, and now it was time to find that next person. I fell in love with everything about Parma Calcio. Great fan base. It's a great city to be in. We've got a fantastic history. We've got a collection of European trophies. It's a great city to, to have the opportunity to have. And so that's kind of what got me there was a little bit of just research really initially from an American standpoint. Can I ask you about the research then? Because yes. quite often, over many, many years, we will have discussions about how on earth can a business person 
get into football and not realise what they're getting into? Or how can their skills that they have in business suddenly disappear when they take over a football club? So in America, you know, you have a hugely successful petrol and, and convenience store chain. What did you research? What were you specifically looking at from a business perspective to take over an Italian football club? From a business perspective, you're looking at, I think, the pros and cons in two fashions. One, of Serie A, and two, of the individual club or clubs that may be available. So from a Serie A standpoint, you look, we all know the history, we all know when it was the number one league, and then you say, what are those constraints that it has today to continue to grow? Does the sport of football, calcio, soccer, do we see a growth in what that is? Is there, is there opportunities from overall from a business standpoint? So I, th- I think if you look at it, you look at a sport, you look at Serie A itself, calcio as whole, as something that great players, great brand, not a lot of infrastructure investment, since the World Cup and they built stadiums last time here. So you got a little bit of a stagnation there from a marketing standpoint. To me, there's some upside in what you see and um, you know, I believe in the sport. So from a club standpoint, I think you do some of the same types of pros and cons. And I think, as you say, what does this club have, not have? And truly for me with, with Parma Calcio, there are virtually no cons and there's all kinds of pros about what we have. Like I mentioned earlier, from a city, from a fan base, from a sponsorship support, from a, from a history, from a trophy case. And so I, it really, for me, the club itself sort of checked all those business boxes that you would say, you know, the upside downside of what you could do versus a different club. Are you researching finally on this, how you can make money, how to make sure that you don't lose money or whether your football club can be successful? And maybe they're all tied in together. I don't know. I think it is. I look at it and say, you know, I have a family business. You know, I have an opportunity to have five kids. And I look at our businesses in the sense that, again, you, you know, whatever you've heard me say before, in, you know, they need to be successful from a generational standpoint, not just a passion that I have today. Because if it's just something that I have, as the passion. And then the day I die between my death and the funeral, the kids sell the club because they all don't want to kick in, you know, X million a piece into the business. I mean, that's just a thing. And that's a hobby. It's not a business. And so any business I'm in, you know, in the intro, we talked about the two wineries and any business, it has to be sustainable in that sense that the family with different levels of passion for that business has to view it as what what it is, as a business. And that can sound maybe a little harsh when you think of the passion of the fans and that, but it's a collective thing where it needs to be sustainable. It needs a sustainable business model, but not at the demise of trying to keep the fans engaged, but it truly looking at from a business standpoint. Carl, I just want to go back to your business analysis and uh, when you were doing your pros and cons of both the league and the club. So Mark and I will remember the 90s when Serie A was clearly the number one league in Europe and Parma were one of the most exciting clubs. I mean, an amazing list of players. I'm sure you know all this, but, you know, to, to our sort of younger listeners, Gianfranco Zola, Fastino Spria, you know, Baggio, Brolin, uh, Crespo. I mean, just, um, just unbelievable names. Nevio Scala was the manager. Fantastic shirts. I love their shirts. They were brilliant in Europe. 
They couldn't quite win Serie A, but they kept winning cups. They're wonderful. I mean, look, I just loved Palmer. I mean, just as a, as a sort of neutral, they were there. I gravitated to them. They they were sort of them, Sampdoria. I, I kind of like those clubs. Now, Palmer have had a, a rough old time of it since, you know, that they've, they've I've, is it a couple of administrations? I mean, yeah, a couple, a couple. They've been all the way down through the leagues. They've been back and sort of, okay, Serie A hasn't had, that much of a, a roller coaster ride, but it's drifted. You know, it, it is third, fourth, probably the fourth best league in, in Europe right now. And it's lost its luster a little bit. Now, what happened to Serie A? Well, you're heading to Serie B next year, but you, you want to be right back in there, right? What do you do as an owner to, to get it going in the right direction again? It's a little probably difficult for me to say what potentially some of these others did right or wrong over the last 20 years, as you pointed out. I mean, I'd probably look at more where are the opportunities today than going there. And I do agree with what you said. The assessment of both Serie A, assessment of Parma, I think is very accurate. And I think what you talked about is your passion for Parma to be the owner, to be the, the caretaker of Parma Calcio today is people do love the brand. And that's, that's a positive thing that we have because of that history. I think for the opportunity side, the EPL's done a fantastic job over the last 30 years creating what they've done from a marketing standpoint. I think communicating in the English language, which good or bad tends to be the worldwide language, uh, is an opportunity also that the EPL's has seized upon. I think for Syria, like I mentioned, there's been, a, I think, a, a stagnation that we can talk about the whys over infrastructure, stadium, what we have, investment. But I do think if you look today and you see a lot of new owners, which by definition doesn't mean good, but I think good as I look at the people coming in and the ones that I've met or look at what their, their business backgrounds are. You have people who, who will bring, I think, a nice new approach, but also not to look at the, the historic owners we've had. They've had fantastic success also. So I think it's a nice mix that way. But I think the opportunity is, what are we doing today to market ourselves? And so I would look at two of you as sports journalists, and you have an opportunity to consume the, the marketing of each league. You get to see what the Liga does, Bundesliga does, Serie A does, EPL does. And you could probably tell me how Serie A could improve, how they make it easier for you to communicate about us. And I think that is about some of the things you see from how do we market the league better? What's it take? What expertise do we have? What expertise do we lack? How do we engage fans around the world? I think we do a fantastic job in the country of Italy, but I think there's a ton of opportunity around the world. You've raised two things that I was really hoping to get into. One is this sort of new wave of ownership, and a lot of it is North American. And then you have raised this issue of how Syria or how it really hasn't marketed itself around the world very easily. Now, you raised La Liga. La Liga is doing very, very well in North and Central America, isn't it? It's really playing on that Spanish language. Almost advantage it has with a, a huge section of the soccer following in, in North America and Mexico. I know that was, might be trickier for Syria, but there is a diaspora out there of Italian Americans, Italian South Americans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Has Syria over the last 20 years neglected that? I look at it today, and today our television partner in America is ESPN, so I'll speak of the today versus what it will be. And I think it's great that every game is on and available nationally in the United States. And that's a, it's an easy to access, easier than, in my opinion, any league but, 
but the EPL in the United States. So from an accessibility to an American, we're the second most accessible league, uh, more so than La Liga, Bundesliga, whatever, from how we can get, how it's delivered to us and how we get the product there as a fan. So I'm speaking from a fan standpoint. I think that that need to invest in making sure that our games, what we are, are that product is available in the countries and accessible in the countries in an easy way. That's what we need to do. And that's the, um, you can call it the investment. It's really not about the short-term gains, not about even to me who paid the most money for the rights in this country or that country. It's about building that fan base and creating and enlarging that fan base that exists around the world to become that league. And I think it's, it's positioning ourselves in those areas that were accessible. And then we can build upon that and what maybe our TV rights are in some country. I think that's your key thing, Kyle, isn't it? Is it's visibility and accessibility. And um, um, look, the UK is a, is a small market, obviously by comparison to a, to a lot of markets. But one of the reasons that Serie A was so successful in the nineties was was twofold. It was it was the World Cup. It was Italian ninety, but it was also the fact that Serie A was available to watch on on free to air television. Now I'm not naive enough to think that you know, free-to-air television can still have the power that it had in the 90s. But I think your Serie A rights at the moment are are not on what you would call one of the uh, sports channels that are, are consumed by the majority of football fans. It's not on a Sky or a BT. It's on a, I think it's on Premier, isn't it, Matt? Premier Sports, I think, which is a, a perfectly good product, but you'd have to buy a third package on top of what you're all already paying. So, I suppose maybe Carl, and this is just the thought of the, it's about balancing your rights packages around the world to get visibility, but also I suppose that the finances that you want. And that's why I look at it as a long-term standpoint. I and mean, I speak of, you know, earlier about our businesses, permaculture, I look at it from a generational standpoint and you're looking at this over longer periods of time. And in that you're not always looking for that myopic return. You're looking for what is that longer return, that longer return on the business is engaging that fan base and maybe maybe giving up some short-term profits to do that and agreeing around the table as fellow owners that that is what's best for our sport. When you come onto the infrastructure, because you, you are going to redevelop your stadium, aren't you? Yes, yes. If you go back to Italia 90, these massive concrete bowl stadiums were constructed for Italia 90. And actually what Juventus have done in recent years is they've actually downsized, haven't they, Kyle? Which which is remarkable in this day and age that they downsize. I'm wondering what you think a fan wants from a stadium now. Because I have pundits... Ex players tell me over over here that fans don't care as long as their team is successful. Doesn't matter if the roof leaks or a rat runs across their foot or whatever. The team's winning the Premier League title. Who who cares? And my argument is, fans are a lot more discerning nowadays. And I I, I say that as someone who goes to rugby games, cricket matches, NFL games. I've been to you know most of the new stadia in the NFL. This is an experience now. Isn't it? Yeah. And you've seen it in England. You've seen the redevelopment and the building of new stadiums. Certainly you talk about the NFL stadiums in, in America and they're, they're fascinating. You know, we have the benefit here in Italy to be able to look at other countries, England, America as two examples, and seeing what they've done from a stadium standpoint and say, 
oh, that's what it is. And I think it's a balance. I mean, an NFL game is completely different than for us watching football, couch, or soccer. I mean, just a, it's a it's a different game. The number of minutes that's played is so small. You you try to distract people on all the downtime. You know, we, you know, we've got a balance of this of this game that's being played for ninety minutes, but you're not trying to interrupt with a whole bunch of noise around the stadium. But how do you make that engagement more than how do I sit in my seat five minutes for the game and walk out of my seat five minutes after the game? And that can include having your panino or whatever you're going to eat. It could be your beer, your glass of wine. It could be it can be part of I want to I want to be there more. And I think also you see this in England is I mean it's your passion for the for the club means maybe I want to go to the stadium on an off day and have my meal there and just look at the field and be inside it and say, wasn't that a great place to, to have that glass of wine at the end of work today? And so that, to me, doesn't disrupt the fact that you want the passionate fans to enjoy that 90-minute experience. This is why we all love the game and balance those things. But you can make it a nice balancing of both where for the fans, the passionate fans that are sitting in the curva, if some person in some suite or loge box or whatever is paying a bunch of money and doing something, that just makes the experience more affordable for the other fans. So I think it's a wonderful balancing act. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more about your plans for the Tardini, the stadium. I've, I've, I've seen your communication to fans after the season. I think it's great in English and in Italian really heartfelt, great messages about, look, you know, it's been a tough old season, but we'll be back. And we, we, we've got such great plans for the club. And, the, and what can you say? I mean, what sort of size do you have in mind? What sort of what sort of feel do you want for the grounds? How are you doing it? Because, of course, in the States, you often get taxpayers to pay. You, you threaten to leave. I'm not saying you personally, but it, it's, 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 it's a way of doing it. You can't do that here. I'm sorry. That just won't wash. So how are you going to do it? You engage the same constituents that you engage in any type of project that is public-private in the sense that you've got, we're in the city center, we've got this almost 100 years old stadium, then you're, you're constrained by the development trying to make sure that our neighbors end up with a better experience than what they have today. And they actually do. And that's part of just the communication. But we're going to be 25,000 or so seats. That's really what our stadium and our site allows today and what we can do uh, from a funding standpoint, we will look not unlike what you see in other countries. You look at what you can do on the premium seating, naming opportunities, and those companies and fans in that sense uh, help fund that stadium for the rest of the fans to go and enjoy. And so it's really that model that's, I don't know that 
anything specifically unique in what we're doing, except you have to take that leap and that leap of faith that this is the right thing to do. And, you know, maybe my exposure, having seen sports in America and seeing facilities and you, you can see that you can see the differences of experiences. And I, I think, you know, Mark talked about having done the same type of thing that, you know, the, sometimes the bar can be only what you know. It's like, I've seen that stadium. I've seen that stadium. Hey, we're not so bad. And Tardini's not so bad. It's not a bad stadium, but it could be so much more. Are you popular? <laughs> you know what? I'm going to say this. Shockingly so. <laughs> I look at some American guy that comes in to Parma and has a team that's in 19th place out of 20. And as I walk down the streets of Parma, you know, every day, and I'm just surprised by how accepting they've been, surprised by the, the thumbs up, the thank yous, the whatever that, they, that they've given back to me when we've been certainly all tremendously disappointed at what's happened on the pitch. You know, for me to self-judge my popularity, I've been warmly received, and I would probably say I don't deserve it. So how have you done that? Because that just hasn't happened by chance. I think for fans, so you took over from fan groups, didn't you, who built the club back up in the main and are putting all that hard work. So I wonder whether there was a bit of suspicion about you coming in originally. And as as we've said, sadly, you have been relegated. And yet, you don't have people saying, why have you taken over or trying to get you out? I mean, it's a genuine business question as well. How have you remained popular? Wow, that's a difficult question to answer without being too egotistical. I'll do my best since you asked. <laughs> you know, in one sense, I tried to be me. And I think that I'm not saying by definition I'm popular. Make sure I put that asterisk there. But, you know, what you see from me, what the fans see from me, what the fans see on Twitter from me or walking down the, the street, they see the passion, they see the enthusiasm, they see the belief in the future that I care. They probably see the commitment that I moved away from my, temporarily, from my wife, from my family, I have to add this, my granddaughter, to live in Palmer because I felt like I had to do everything I could do, even though I don't think I, I obviously I didn't keep us from getting relegated, but I didn't want to look back and say I didn't do everything I could to try to keep the season on the right track. I guess I'm saying the passion and enthusiasm that if I speak for the fans they see, when I walk down the street, I try to be friendly and smile and say hi to people and do what people should do. You communicate, Kyle. You communicate. Yeah. Yeah, verbally and non-verbally. I mean, I'm walking down the street last night. You just wave to people across the street. Or somebody rides by on their bike and they say, hello, or El Presidente or whatever. And you say, hello, how are you? And you try to be friendly like you should be. Carl, I think you raise a really interesting point. We talk a lot about foreign ownership. We talk to many people like you, you know, North Americans, but Brits and all sorts of that own clubs elsewhere. And a common mistake is that they're not there. They're not really there. So they miss things. And you told us before we, before we started recording that you've, you've tried to go to every home game. Those are the little things that I think people notice. Every game. Every game, every was game. it, sorry. Well, even, even better, even better. I don't want you to start sort of critiquing everybody else's mistakes, but there have been 
some big mistakes made by North Americans, particularly in Italy. You know, there's a very famous case involving Mike Piazza, the the the, the baseball player. That there was a huge story for us at the Athletic, and it, um, he's not the only one that has kind of misjudged Italy. You've got to be there, right? You know, it's not for me to judge other owners and how they choose to live their lives or how much time they want to be or not be here. So I want to make sure my message is, gee, look at me. You know, I made this commitment this year. You didn't. Therefore, there's some type of me assuming that I'm better than you or whatever. I chose to make this commitment because I wanted to. I think some choose to make a different type of commitment to the business. I think it's all okay. It's all each individual's decision. I think I understand what we're doing better by being here and being here every day. And I sit in a waiting room in our lobby of our building. And that's where I am right now. And I sit here because people can see me. I see the players walk in and out. I see the people I work with. It's, it's a chance for me to be closer and more engaged. And I, I choose to do that. But if another owner says, hey, my business is in America or other parts of the world are keeping me from being there, then that's their decision. But I think back to your question about popularity, I think certainly people on the streets know that I'm here. They see me and that probably enhances their perception of me and therefore their perception of Palmer Calcio. Yeah, I'm just a reflection. Yeah, I'm the president, right? I'm just a reflection of, of who we are, of who Palmer Calcio is. Do you get annoyed at all American owners being lumped together in, in one group, which is what the media tends to do a lot. Uh, but secondly, do you talk to other North American owners across the continent? I get very much annoyed. At the, at the collection. And it's like any stereotype, right? If we said everybody who's X is the same, this is 2021, you can't talk about people in that way. And so it does frustrate me. And then if I can do the, the, the tangent to that, it's like, oh, you know, somehow I just figured out that we had relegation, you know, two weeks ago or something like that. It's the other one we get accused of as Americans or it's like, well, I've been following this game for quite a while. I've gone to Calcio games for a long, long, long time, but all different type of levels. I probably knew we had relegation before I wrote the checks. Just saying. So I think that, yeah, the the grouping us all together is difficult. I mean, to be frank, I haven't talked to as many of my fellow North American owners recently as I should. I've seen some at games, some not, just depending upon each of our travel schedules and what they're doing and what their plans are. But prior to doing, prior to making the acquisition, Rocco Camiso, Joey Saputo were very helpful to me and just coaching me in direction and thoughts and very, very open. And they couldn't have been more kind in the process. To date, I've seen Rocco's son here, but you know, Rocco and I haven't matched up on game days yet. On the relegation that you talk about, financially, how does that affect a club going from Serie A to Serie B? Because, you know, obviously in the UK and in the Premier League, there are massive parachute payments that the Premier League give to clubs who've been relegated because of the huge discrepancies in revenues between the top flight and the championship. The parachute payments are dramatically different here. Not saying they don't exist. They're done very, very differently and. It could probably be a different podcast. We could, you know, you could dive into how they're done and what they should be done and the pros and cons or whatever. And so, yes, it's certainly dramatically different, as you can imagine. The biggest difference is just in your TV revenue. I mean, it, that just changes dramatically. You know, you have some other changes in other revenue, but it's really about the TV, which is a club like us in Italy is a large percentage of our 
revenue side. So yeah, we'll take a hit. We'll take a hit for the year we're down. And you then end up, because you were down a little behind a year from now when we're back up, assuming we're down for one year, you have like a two-year setback. But going back to my point from a generational standpoint, I'll say this, I never thought we'd ever be relegated. I just like, not that I didn't think it was a risk. I mean, it's a ball that, you know, you guys know the score of the game, how the ball bounces, you know, anything, anything can happen, but it doesn't change anything we're doing. It doesn't change stadium investment, doesn't change training facility investments, doesn't change players. It's a short-term hit and a long-term game. Carl, I was just wondering about um, your, your levels of frustration at being stereotyped and, and whether they sort of gone through the roof of late around the European Super League conversation. You mentioned Rocco Camiso, who, who owns Fiorentina. You know, you've got Robert Platek at Spezia. Of course, you've got Elliot at AC Milan, and they were one of the clubs, of course, who were involved in the European Super League plan. How is Italian football moving on from that crisis a few weeks ago? Is it moving on? Have you had any part in what happens next? Have you had a chance to express your views on the matter? You know, I made a small statement in the middle of it on Twitter. You know, promotion relegation, you know, the jeopardy, the interest in virtually every game going into the end of the season, on if in Serie A, B, Liga Pro, whatever, what, what country you're in, it's part of what the game is. It's part of the passion. It's part of the interest. It's part of the fact that we're a club here in Parma, that you have that as part of what you're doing, like every other club throughout Italy. And so I think that the concept of not having it as accessible and open from a league standpoint in any sense is bad. And so in that sense, I think, and when you looked at the Super League, I mean, it, it, it didn't make any sense for to be in the moment for whomever. It's a story that has been talked about for decades. It probably still gets talked about for decades, whatever name we put on it. I think the opportunity for Syria. I think the opportunity is saying, okay, there's a bit of a, I don't know, wake up call of, okay, what do we want to be now? What, how does that change what we want to do and what we want to be and, you know, what we believe? And I think that opportunity is how you take something like this and say, okay, how do we improve what we're doing? What should Syria look like? And how does this become a, a catalyst for change for that? You know, as far as, my role, 20 owners, one of the new ones, as we pointed out already, thanks a lot, head to Serie B next year. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I give my point, my message. I look at this from a long term. I look at how we grow the league. You know, I'm passionate about Serie A. I'm passionate about growing Serie B. I'm passionate about League of Pro, and they all have opportunities for growth. Do you think that's the overall feeling of Serie A clubs is right? draw a line under it, how can we move on and improve our, our league, our product, our competition, or is the mood more, let's punish these bastards? Having maybe a more balanced distribution of revenue is a way to move forward. I don't know it's a, it's a punishment for those people, but it may be indirectly how what strengthens the league. And so, therefore, could, you know, there's wins and losses. But if you truly believe in the strength of Serie A, you say, how do you make Serie A, how do you make the EPL, how do you make the Bundesliga stronger instead of how do I make my club stronger? And I think that's a hard balance for people. But I think if you look and say, we want the Serie A to be the best league in the world, the second best league in the world, what do we have to do to do that? And you say, what 
and it, it includes, I believe, more parenting what happens in the league to try to create more balance and more interest in what you have. And that's not unique to Syria. So how do people think? I don't think it's a direct punishment, but I think there is an opportunity to create more parity. Is part of the answer for Syria and for Syria's growth and the opportunities that you've talked about, is part of the answer the sale of that stake to private equity that has been one of the ongoing sagas in Italian football for the last, I don't know, few months? And, and why has that sale been so difficult to achieve? The idea of the sale was you have two ways of marking our league better. We either hire a bunch of people, bring that competency in-house and grow, some risks are there, or we partner and bring that competency in in that way. And I think the decision that was made at one point by at least the majority of us to partner and do that private equity deal, again, either approach, you're both just trying to, to market our league better worldwide than what we do today. That's the approach. And going the private equity route, I think, was a faster way. Faster isn't always better, but I, I do think there was some positivity to it. Why it didn't happen, I don't know that I can answer and know why it didn't happen. I think today, I think there's still the rekindling of trying to make that deal happen, in my opinion. And so I, you know, I can't speak for the other owners, but I do think it could be one of those things, like we mentioned before, is maybe we have a catalyst change that occurred at the Super League. And that's like, you know what, we, we need to do. We need to do something. You, know, you get in a room with people and some of them know each other a long time. And sometimes this issue gets voted on or not voted on because of this issue over here, even though they're not connected, but it's just people. And it's not always as clean and logical as it could be. No different than I'm not as clean and logical as I could be. I do think that the move towards doing it should happen. I think it's the right move. And I think it's just going to help grow the league. How far ahead do you plan, Kyle? Do you set targets for your team for the end of next season? Are you looking three years, five years? How do you work this? As we talk about it and from a target standpoint, yeah, there's some things you need further out, stadium construction, something like that. And there's some things that you are planning more year after year. But I think I look at it from a longer term standpoint. I think from a, a team performance, it's how do we get better every year? You know, we're not going to show up one summer and drop however many hundred Euro and say that's going to be our solve next year to get to Europe, but we're going to grow our way into that, grow our academy, get to there. So I think it's different parts of the business, but the planning is that continued incremental growth on the pitch with building the additional infrastructure, people, talent, facilities over time. Are you glad you did it? I'm very happy I did it. For my wife and me, as we talked about it before. I did it. You have those conversations, you know, one COVID, one lockdown back in America at that time, you, you spend every evening going for a walk and talking about this thing, because it is a, there's a life-changing piece to it. A lot of matches, a lot of that. And so that part you think ahead of time, but looking back at it, yeah, it's, there's no club I would rather have bought than Parma Calcio. And I mean, I, I told my son that in the last 48 hours as we talked about it. It's, it's, it's great from that standpoint. There are days I've had more fun than others. Why I've had the opportunity to be the president and the owner here, I'm very happy I did it. One quick one for our, our US listeners. Okay. It, it reminds me of some other conversations I've been having recently with guys in, in your situation who own USL clubs and this relationship between USL and MLS and this assumption that everybody in USL really wants to be an MLS. Is that assumption actually right? Where are you at? 
in with your team in Des Moines? And well, you know, what are your ambitions? Well, our ambitions is to be a a, a USL championship, so similar nomenclature that you have in England. So a second division club. Obviously, we don't have promotion relegation. I think there's certainly a possibility that the USL will in the future have promotion relegation. Don't know. I think the MLS model is a nice, you see the nice value creation in an MLS model, but there certainly is a lack of flexibility. I was talking to a person the other day, an Italian, who had talked and entertained a thought about being head of scouting for an MLS club someday, like living in America sounded fun. And I said, gee, have you thought about all the constraints you have on player acquisition and those types of things? And it's just, it's a, it's a different game in the MLS. I think it's a financially successful game. Certainly you look at it, you look at the expansion fees, the franchise appreciations, but I think if you look at the USLC, the championship, and you see much more flexibility of what you can do from a player standpoint. And that's what most of the rest of us are used to around the world. And so I think for us, the opportunity for flexibility is a positive thing between our you know, pro-Iowa initiative that we have right now and our Kyle, we appreciate you uh, giving us your time. I know you're on your way for for Palmer's game to against Lazio this evening. So, thank you very much for joining us and giving an insight into into what you've done at the club. It's much appreciated. No, my pleasure. I'm a, I'm a fan of your podcast. I listen to you each week. So, uh, when you guys reached out, it was like, yeah, that, you guys are great. I love <laughs> I, I love the opportunity. Right. So, uh, thank you very much for having me. And uh, maybe next time we'll talk, we'll talk about. Maybe in Serie A again with Parma Calcio. Yes. Yeah. Well, hopefully with a a glass of wine in hand overlooking your new stadium. That'd be perfect. Yes, yes. The glass of wine always (laughs) enhances everything. So it's nice. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Good luck tonight. Nice to meet you. Thank Thank you. you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it. Don't forget, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. Go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman and you get that special 40% discount. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman and we're back next week. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.